Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, one of the executive editors here at BioCentury. And joining me today to talk biotech are my colleagues. Simon Fishburne, editor-in-chief. Steve Osden, Washington editor. Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, we'll talk about Steve's conversation on the BioCentury show with Bob Nelson of Arch Venture. They talked AI, China, and the IRA. Plus, will TL1A be the gateway to precision medicine in inflammation and biomarkers to support rare disease regulatory pathways? Okay, Steve, on last week's BioCentury show, you spoke with Bob Nelson about AI's potential in biotech, his thoughts on investing in China amid growing geopolitical tensions, all while his cat threatened to upstage him by lounging on the couch behind him during the interview. You know, it's, it's always something when one of biotech's most prominent investors gets upstaged by a fuzzball. But hey, um, Steve, what stood out to you the most about your conversation? You know, sometimes I have, I have interviews, you know, conversations with people for print stories. And I really wish that instead of writing about them, people could just see them and hear them. And that's really what my conversation with Bob Nelson was. It wasn't even so much what he said, though. What he said was really interesting. But it was the way that he talked and the, the sincerity and the honesty, I think, that came through. He just propped a smartphone on a table in, in front of him and literally just leaned into it and talked. And he, this is a guy who has nurtured and helped create and fund some of the most important life sciences companies, you know, more than 150 companies, Illumina, Alnylam, Juno, Veer, and, you know, and lots more. And so one of the things that came out to me, I didn't ask him about it explicitly, but he answered one of the questions that I always wonder about when I talk to people who are that successful, which is, you know, what keeps them going a long time after most people, many people anyway, would have quit, you know, and kicked back and been on a beach somewhere. He has a deep conviction that the healthcare system could be much, much better, and that instead of spending trillions of dollars on hospitals and largely ineffective treatments, it could be reoriented toward prevention and cures. And he's helping create companies that could be the starting point for that kind of change. And that, that's one of the things that came through in the conversation that was really interesting to me. Yeah, I agree, Steve. I think that his comments on AI were important for a couple of reasons. One is everybody knows they've got to get their head around AI and how it's going to affect drug development. Nobody knows exactly what that means, I think. Hearing people like Bob Nelson, who is obviously you know, an investor, he's, you know, thinking about where he's going and his vision, and he's really a big thinker in this way. And so what I found interesting was that on the one hand, he had a very macro view of how healthcare needs to change. And on the other hand, you can sort of see him reducing that to practice with specific applications of AI to create, he called one thing as a language of biology. And the other thing he said was the promise of AI to decode some of the disparate types of data. And this is the language that biotech has got to start talking. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, he said, look, there's the obvious ways that AI can make drug development more efficient. But he also talked about this bigger picture of the possibility of using it to find connections and data that will fundamentally change understandings of biology and disease. 
you know, and you got to think that's what's really important and that's what's really exciting. We also talked about China. That was interesting because Bob Nelson was one of the first, if not the first, investors to come from the West to China and do biotech deals. He is to this day the chair of a Chinese pharmaceutical company. He's got deep understanding of China. He talked about the geopolitical tensions between the United States and China and acknowledged that because of those, it's difficult to invest for him and for other American companies to invest in China right now, that they're kind of taking a, a wait and see approach to things. But he also talked, and I think this was really important. He talked about this rivalry between the United States and China and said, it's really important to define success. And that brings up one of the things that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that most of the people in the United States who are most concerned about Chinese biotech define success as them losing rather than us winning. And that, that's not really a, a, a very useful way to look at things. What Bob said is that defining success means the United States playing offense, building American capacity. And by the way, I think this is a good moment to also mention something that's that I haven't written yet, which is that my understanding from speaking with people who are advising the House Select Committee on China is that they've they've heard the concerns that have been raised by biotech companies about the Biosecure Act and that they're going to dial back the bill. My guess is that it's going to focus on uh, BGI and maybe some other genomics companies, and they're going to avoid kicking contract development and manufacturing organizations like the Wuxi's out of the United States. And that's something else that he mentioned, basically said, Bob Nelson mentioned that you don't want to do more harm than good, and that you could do that by focusing on the wrong problems. Yeah, I thought on China and on geopolitics, he, again, was a quite a clear thinker. And as you point out, he talked about the fact that really there's a much bigger risk internally if biotech doesn't get its act together on drug pricing than there is for anything external in terms of losing market share or losing preeminence. And, you know, it, we've written about this before, you've written about this before, but this idea in healthcare of a winner takes all or a um, the idea of a zero sum game. I mean, we're talking about creating medicines for patients and, you know, that's global patients. And I thought that there's an element of clarity to his lack of hysteria and his pushback on the hysteria about China. Well, and the other thing is, is that he said explicitly, he said, look, we can screw ourselves a lot more than they can hurt us. And what he was talking about there was legislation and policy that he's concerned could lead the United States to lose its preeminence in the life sciences. And that's a good segue into what he said about the IRA. He basically said that, you know, the IRA, by incentivizing investment in biologics over small molecules, is not good for, it's not good for American taxpayers, it's not good for American patients or American companies. But the bigger thing that he's concerned about is that that is just the um, camel's nose under the tent and that it could lead to an expansion of the IRA, things that Democratic members of Congress and the Biden administration, the White House, have already said that they want to do to bring the threshold period for setting prices, for negotiating uh, Medicare drug prices earlier than the nine years that it is for small molecules and the 13 years it is for biologics, and also even going into regulating um, launch prices of drugs. And 
Those are the kinds of things that Bob Nelson said basically could really damage, could decimate the, the American industry. Never took you to be a camel man, Steve, but uh, it's a, a good image there. I've All ridden right. camels. I, I, I've ridden camels. I can't say that I, I like them, but I have um, done it on more than one occasion. Well, there is, of course, that great camel joke in the all-time terrific movie Zootopia. What do you call a three-humped camel, Steve? Pregnant. Sure. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little uh, more up to date on the, the, the animated films, I guess. Um, For the record, I, I too have ridden a, a camel, Steve. How long did it take you to sit down afterwards comfortably? It's it it was challenging. Not not to that. What what was actually what's actually harder after spending you know hours and hours on a camel is, is getting off the damn thing. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But All anyway, right. after a while, you get used to it. All right, you can go to our YouTube channel, BioCentury's YouTube channel, to watch the Bob Nelson episode. It as Steve said, it it's really terrific. Just hearing from Bob and uh, and his cat. Next week, BioCentury and Bay Helix kick off the third East-West Biopharma Summit. Simone will be there. It's in Singapore. Let's take a quick break to hear about it. This March, BioCentury, Bay Helix, and Insights partner McKinsey & Company bring the third East-West Biopharma Summit to Singapore, the gateway to Asia. At the summit, you will get a first-hand look at how the smart money pouring into Singapore plans to scale up the emerging life sciences ecosystem. You will also meet the key players from Asia's innovation arc, from India through Southeast Asia to China, Korea, and Japan. If you are a biopharma executive looking for partners or investors, or a life sciences investor looking for portfolio companies or limited partners, now is the time to meet Asia leaders face-to-face in Singapore. Register today at biocentryeastwest.com. There's still time to register. Go to biocenturyeastwest.com to learn more. There's also digital passes available. Lauren, last week you took a look at how TL1A inhibitors appear to be on the cusp of bringing precision medicine into large inflammatory and autoimmune indications. What did you learn? Thanks, Jeff. Well, so I learned that they may or may not be on the cusp of bringing precision medicine to large inflammatory indications. So what you don't see every day in these types of indications are are trials that are stratified with different types of biomarkers to try to find um, which patients are more likely to respond. This is something that happens in cancer all the time, and it just hasn't worked its way into these indications. One of the reasons, and there are several reasons that TL1A inhibitors are so interesting, but one of the reasons is that companies are trying to do this, several companies. Merck acquired Prometheus with what's now a phase three antibody against the target, and they are developing what they're calling a complementary diagnostic test. And based on phase two data, it does look as though there is some kind of a signal suggesting that you might be able to tell which patients with inflammatory bowel diseases, specifically they're advancing the ulcerative colitis indication, might be more likely to respond to this treatment. Lauren, I think one of the things, you know, at a, at a high level we should understand is that immunity and inflammation is sort of one of the prime areas where precision medicine could have applications because there's such very large indications and you'd want to break up that 
patient population and really target things to the patients who will benefit the most and have the least toxicity, of course. But one of the things that we've been hearing and you've been exploring is how that actually ends up being at odds with the sort of commercial interests, which aren't even just commercial interests, but the idea of how many patients can really benefit. So why don't you sort of lay that out for us? That's right. So I think no matter where you're applying precision medicine, it's always the question from a company's perspective, from the commercial team's perspective, whether or not you actually want to subtype patients. And then that becomes even more complicated when the biomarker does not precisely decide which patients will respond. When you've got some negative patients in the group who could benefit from a therapy. So with the current state of I and I, you know, these large types of indications, often what happens is that it's really trial and error with some pretty general mechanisms to to treat patients. And if if one drug doesn't work, there's another drug to try um, in something like IBD. And obviously, it would benefit patients if if you were able to predict which would be the most effective to spare them from unnecessary side effects and, and time wasted on therapies that don't work. You know, one of the reasons we focused on TL1A is that it's sort of one of the first. And as you talked about, there was a very big deal between Merck and Prometheus. And there's a couple of other competitors in that space. It seems to me that what you're saying is the problem in that case is that the diagnostic test that would come out of it is not actually that good. It's sort of how perfect does it have to be? So I suppose the idea is that if you've got some false negatives, there's a certain number of patients who would be able to benefit that the test didn't capture. And commercial teams, of course, would rather like, you know, prefer to have an all comers label, right? Let's get it in as many people as possible. Right. So I, I think the problem here is, as you said, you may have patients who who would respond to a therapy who might not qualify if there are a biomarker a companion diagnostic that a drug is approved with, and that's a condition of getting insurance coverage, for example. In this case, I spoke with Mark, and they said the plan, you know, this is based on phase two data, and it will obviously depend on what happens in phase three, but the plan would be to commercialize a complementary diagnostic test that physicians could use to help make a decision about whether or not a patient should get a therapy, not necessarily a companion diagnostic test that will be a requirement. Um, You know, commercialize the test and the therapeutic. And I think it's very early to tell, but that raises a lot of questions about, is this in the best interest of the company? Does this create a differentiation for a product? If you're able to say that a patient's more likely to respond, maybe they'll be more likely to adopt a new therapy, or does it unnecessarily limit the market? And then there's obviously the question of insurance reimbursement, whether or not you could get payers to reimburse something that's not a requirement for treatment. So Lauren, you've either got the companion test, which is compulsory, or a complementary test, which is what you seem to be indicating, which is not compulsory. And in that case, what is it? The commercial teams will then actually have to go out and persuade prescribing physicians that it is worth taking that test and maybe persuade payers as well. Is that how you're seeing it? I think that's right. And again, we don't know what's going to happen in phase three. Actually, something interesting is the phase two data in Crohn's disease, and this is a tiny number of patients. But in that case, it looked as though, and this was not a placebo-controlled trial, and this is the Prometheus study, it looked as though the biomarker negative group didn't really 
respond better than historical placebo controls. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen in phase three. In that case, it might be a much easier answer if that's how the, the data continue to look as the more advanced trials read out. So this is a really important area because, you know, this whole issue of precision medicine, it's worked in cancer and it really hasn't yet gone beyond cancer. But with the amount of genomics information, and everything that's coming, it's got to be a matching of the biology and the science with the commercial case for it. And I think that that's what we'll be watching going ahead. And let's let's go back to Steve. Steve, you're working on a story this week about last week's Reagan Udall workshop on qualifying biomarkers to support regulatory pathways for rare diseases. The meeting came ahead of Rare Disease Day. That's February 29th. Why was this meeting so important? You know, I, I do think it was it was a really important meeting. Jim Wilson, the gene therapy pioneer, said that he thought that the meeting was a watershed event. And I, I think he may be right. The whole purpose of the meeting was to talk about the use of heparin sulfate in neuropathic MPS, that's a set of ultra-rare disorders, as a case marker for a biomarker that could support accelerated approval. That sounds incredibly wonky, but the people who were there made it clear that there are tremendous impacts from the decisions that are going to come out of this workshop. Basically, it's impossible to overstate the urgency and the stakes for the patients and their families. MPS patients progress and they get irreversible brain damage. There's a, a mountain of evidence to indicate that heparin sulfate levels, which can be measured in the cerebrospinal fluid, are the cause of this brain damage. And what the patients and what the companies want is for FDA to agree to approve therapies based on that biomarker. There are several therapies, at least three, that are ready to go pretty much right now if FDA were to allow approvals based on that biomarker. If FDA doesn't accept that biomarker, the companies that are developing those three therapies may have to wait four, five, or six years before they'll be able to get therapies approved. In that period of time, the children who have this disease now will go, many of them, from being able to talk and to interact to losing their ability to do anything other than scream. And they will be locked in and really in a terrible situation. Another thing that came up at the meeting that I thought was really fascinating and interesting is that approving drugs based on this biomarker will kind of break a catch-22 because the goal has to be to conduct newborn screening that will detect children before they have any visible symptoms. Because then if you treat them, hopefully you can prevent them from ever developing those symptoms, which are irreversible. But you can't have a screening test until you have an approved therapy. And the problem is now, since patients are only detected once they're already symptomatic and they've already lost brain function, it's unlikely that a therapy is going to have dramatic effects. It's going to stabilize them where they are, which the families are very happy to have that help happen. They're very anxious to have that happen. But it, it's much more difficult to perceive benefit when you're stabilizing patients who have already lost a great deal of cognition. So the hope is 
that drugs can be approved now um, that will help patients avoid further brain loss, and that that will also trigger screening, which will in turn make it possible to prevent patients in the future from experiencing those kinds of symptoms. Another thing that the parents brought up at this meeting is that in addition to requiring lengthy trials of these therapies, FDA is requiring placebo control trials. So it's putting parents in positions where they have to accept the possibility that their child won't be treated, at least for some period of time, and they'll have experienced irreversible brain damage while they're waiting for the data to accumulate that will show a differentiation between the placebo arm and um, the control arm. And that's not something that any parent would accept voluntarily. What's next coming out of this meeting? What I'm hearing is that in the coming weeks or months, FDA is going to make some kind of a decision about whether they're going to accept heparin sulfate as a biomarker for neuronopathic MPS. My sense coming out of this meeting was that they'll have little choice but to do so. There's an added complication here, which is that there are different modalities that are being developed and they're regulated by different centers. Some of them are gene therapies that are being regulated by CBER. Some of them are enzyme replacement therapies that are being regulated by CDER. And there seems to be differences of opinions between reviewers at the different centers about the um, strength of the evidence for this biomarker. I spoke with Emil Caucus, the CEO of Ultragenics, and he said that this meeting is going to be important not only for MPS and his company's developing a gene therapy for MPS, but he said also that it could make it possible to use biomarkers to gain approvals for drugs for other ultra-rare conditions. And he said that there may be as many as 20 or more therapies that could be approved in the next two years for ultra-rare conditions if this kind of logjam is broken and FDA routinely accepts biomarkers when there's a great deal of evidence behind them for ultra-rare conditions. Steve, there's also some legislation uh, moving through Congress. You want to talk about that briefly? Yeah. So on the 29th, which is February 29th, which is aptly rare disease day, there's going to be a markup at the Energy and Commerce Committee of a bunch of bills, most of them about rare disease, most of them about children. One of the bills seeks to permanently reauthorize the Creating Hope Act, which provides the legal framework for pediatric priority review vouchers. There are other bills that aim to make it easier for kids with rare diseases to get reimbursement from uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and and hopefully even private payers. There are um, bills that aim at improving ALS care and a whole bunch of others. I think that it's, it's certain that these bills are going to pass the, the House. All of them have bipartisan support in the House. The real question is going to be what happens when they get to the Senate and then whether Congress in general can get its act together to pass any kind of legislation or to find a way to insert these into um, legislation that has to move this year. All right. Thanks for that, Steve and Simone and Lauren. Thanks, as always, for your thoughts on the latest on the biotech scene. Uh, Also on biocentury.com, you'll find uh, one of our new features, uh, Rare Disease Spotlight, which our colleagues Danielle Golovin and Gunjin Ori are putting together. 
The first one looks at treating a facial muscular dystrophy at its root. We also have the latest recommendations by EMA's CHMP and in the most recent in our series of emerging company profiles, our colleague Stephen Hansen takes a look at Swiss obesity company Aracal, whose zebrafish platform identifies new appetite suppressant targets without unwanted adverse effects. Thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next week. And as always, Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.